Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow. Welcome to Room Now. This podcast is sponsored by AbbVie U.S. Medical Affairs. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with a gastroenterologist, Dr. Nayak. Dr. Nayak, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, for sure. Thanks, Dr. Dow. My name is uh, Amr Nayak. I'm a founding partner in Midwest Digestive Health and Nutrition and director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining me. So this is a very important conversation. And during this conversation that we're going to have, we're going to talk about different aspects of how GI and rheumatology intersects. So from our diseases, I treat rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, to GI stuff where you're treating inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. We're going to be mentioning upadacitinib. And so before we begin our discussion, I do want to review the indications and limitations for upadacitinib in RA, PSA, and IBD. Upadacitinib is indicated for adults with moderately to severely active rheumatoid arthritis and adults with active psoriatic arthritis who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more tumor necrosis factor blockers. In addition, upadacitinib is indicated for adults with moderately to severely active ulcerative colitis and adults with moderately to severely active Crohn's disease who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more TNF blockers. Limitations of use is that upadacitinib is not recommended for use in combination with other JAK inhibitors, biological therapies for the specified indications, or with potent immunosuppressants such as azathioprine and cyclosporin. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to start our discussion with some of the common themes with regards to our diseases that both you and I treat. For the most part, I treat a lot of rheumatoid arthritis patients and psoriatic arthritis patients. And I know that with you running the IBD clinic, you're seeing the Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of the similarities and differences that you might see in your patient group and my patient group? Oh, absolutely, Dr. Dow. Thank you. Um, so rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel diseases, or IBD, we'll call that, are very, very similar kind of phenomena. They're basically driven by essentially what amounts to a dysregulated immune response to either potentially some potential bacterial antigens or, or some other kind of systemic stress that potentially is a big part of this. And so what I've learned over the years is we have kind of taken lots of our disease management tips and skills from rheumatologists. The kind of extra intestinal manifestations are very common. You know, at least over 30% of our patients are suffering from joint pain. And that what we call that enteropathic arthropathy can be quite debilitating and sometimes shed a light into clues as to what may be happening in their intestines. So when you think of potentially the rheumatoid arthritis patients, they may be a little older. Our patients are young and with the same type of debilitating joint disease and inflammation, both in their gut and in their joints. So if you can imagine someone who has frequent urgent stool eliminations or pain, malnutrition, and then having to quickly get to the bathroom with painful inflamed joints, it's really, really a lot of suffering that patients undergo. So we definitely have a significant overlap and we've had to learn a lot and collaborate a lot with our rheumatologists because of this. Yeah. And whenever we see uncontrolled inflammation, I mean, I'm not just worried about the joints, right? Because there's systemic effects. We worry about an increase in cardiovascular disease, infections, malignancies. But I'm really worried about how the disease is going to ravage a patient. And oftentimes I'll tell the patient, look, your body is your house. When you have a fire, 
that's going to burn down your house. And you can use a squirt gun. You can use a big, you know, garden hose or let's bring out the fire hydrant. We got to control this inflammation because there's nothing left to come home to if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up such an amazing point in the sense that, hey, we have to talk about the effects of the disease, the debilitating disease, the side effects on the body, the impact of uncontrolled inflammation. Right. And so we know that patients who have disease activity have a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. So do you discuss with your patients cardiovascular risk? Absolutely. I think it is important to discuss systemic inflammation. I sometimes, right or wrong, will even talk about some of the inflammatory serologic markers that not all of our patients, but many of our patients use, like, for example, C-reactive protein, when we measure that. Even cardiologists, per se, have utilized that same marker to kind of risk stratify sometimes patients with coronary disease. So elevations in that inflammation market can suggest and kind of tie in together some of the risk factors of inflammation throughout, and then what that kind of uh, impacts from the cardiovascular standpoint. So for example, inflammation in your blood vessels, inflammation in your gut, there's, you know, almost like this whole other background of vasculitis that we see where there's inflammation everywhere. And then we have to potentially control this all throughout. And so it's your gut and your joints as like where we see the target of things potentially deteriorating, but actually what lies beneath is actually, you know, systemic and involving the whole body itself. And some of those things are your heart. And so it's like, we talk about joints with the digestive tract, you know, there's skin, there's other areas that all kind of manifest outwardly from the systemic inflammation. So one of the things that, you know, had caught me by surprise was that the European League Against Rheumatism, so ULAR, they had made a very bold statement. They said that the rheumatologist is responsible for cardiovascular disease monitoring. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, what do you mean me? I mean, usually it should be like the primary care doctor or a patient's cardiologist, right? But actually, if you think about it, we as rheumatologists, we see our patients pretty frequently. And just like you guys do, you guys see your patients pretty regularly as well. So are you monitoring these patients? How are you mitigating their risk? I love that question. And being a huge football fan, we have become armchair quarterbacks for our patients um, where they have this wonderful long-term relationship with us. We do disease monitoring serologically. We, we use, you guys have joint exams, we have endoscopic evaluation, but a member of our team sees them or has a touch point with them every three months, every few months sometimes for a variety of reasons and making sure patients can stay on therapy, get on therapy, address their questions, et cetera. And so I think there's a little bit of onus in, in terms of us having to take some responsibility above their medical health. You and I are internists at, at the core, and then we come out into our own specific fields in rheumatology and gastroenterology. But we have to take ownership of talking about patients, making sure they have cardiovascular health, making sure that patients can get, you know, for example, health maintenance. We play a huge role in helping our primary care docs with vaccinations, things like that to ensure, you know, longer term safety. So I think we generally get that great doctor-patient relationship that you had envisioned, you know, when you're a young medical student and you're really taking care of that whole person um, that has the condition rather than just treating that condition itself. And I think we have a lot of responsibility to communicate benefits, harms, risks, and how to live healthy um, all throughout. So I think you have a much harder job than I do because, you know, the way you assess disease activity, because if a patient eats something wrong, they might have abdominal pain and diarrhea. I mean, I, I, just out of curiosity, tell me about how you assess these patients with IBD. 
Oh my gosh. It's so, it's very challenging because many of us have had, you know, like bad food and had diarrhea and urgency. We've can have that emphasis. And then, you know, you have that for all the time because if you didn't do anything wrong. And now you almost have this pseudo PTSD, like I had diarrhea today. Does that mean my ulcerative colitis is out of control? Things are going awry. I kind of kind of look at it in terms of a two by two. We have patients that are good and feel good. They are bad and they feel bad. And, and we feel great about what to do there. And sometimes patients are bad and feel good. And what that means is potentially you, you catch signs of the disease activity being active early when they're feeling great. You start seeing the inflammation markers rise. You start seeing things kind of drift off. So we have to kind of confirm with other objective data. And then you have patients that feel horrible for a variety of reasons, perhaps scarring or damage. It's like, okay, we have to work on their diet a little better, work on cutting down or other things that can't be tolerated while we have actually also healed the mucosa. So we have to then work at making them feel better. So you're right. It's very challenging. Knowing your patient is the best kind of solution to trying to figure out if this is going to be okay or not and addressing the pattern. It's very challenging as you can imagine, like something so subtle. The other thing that I, I was wondering also is that a lot of times I look for extra articular manifestations. And so patients with psoriatic arthritis, they may have, I mean, not just skin disease, but they can have uveitis, they can have colitis and different kinds of colitis. In terms of your practice, do you just only worry about the gut or, or do you also <laughs> assess other aspects? Well, that's what makes this so beautiful in terms of utilizing precision medicine and utilizing the patient that's there. There's something about the IBD patient that also has pretty significant joint inflammation because not everybody does, right? But there's many that do. And we have a lot to learn from that. There are people that have more dermatologic phenomenon, patients that have had more I mean, immunologic kind of like forming antibodies, et cetera, right? So you know, my favorite clinic was right when I started. And it was when I had a dermatologist and a rheumatologist and a GI, us being there together, you know, in, in an era where things were still developing, that was my favorite clinic. That's where I think the future is of cross-collaboration is. So it definitely makes a huge difference. So, you know, the ACR, American College of Rheumatology, we have guidelines with what they would recommend us using to treat as first-line therapy, second-line therapy. I'm sure the AGA has something similar. So what do you do for patients who've already tried and failed TNF inhibitors? You know, it's TNF failure is it's a very real thing, unfortunately. And oh, I wish it weren't. There are patients that I like sorting them out by patients who TNFs never really quite work for them to the degree that they should have. And there are some patients who it worked for a while and then you lost response, right? Even though you've been monitoring and doing well with them. And it's just the nature of their systemic inflammatory condition and how their immune system is working. And so I think when TNFs fail, historically in inflammatory biology trials, those patients don't do as well on subsequent therapies sometimes. And I don't really know why. I don't know if it's because of suppressing the TNF this has occurred or it's a disease severity issue in inflammatory biology. So disease severity saying there's features of that IBD that that patient has very severe phenotypes so we have to be very aggressive versus disease activity, anyone snapshot point in time, maybe how that scope looks, how that you know, hemoglobin is low, how that, how the, the degree of leukocytosis, et cetera. And so I like to think about, you know, when TNFs have failed and the disease is active and we're having problems, I like to think about other modalities. Yeah. You know, so when the oral surveillance trial came out, it was a study looking at tofacitinib versus a TNF inhibitor in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have high risk for cardiovascular events. And they were looking at cardiovascular events. They were looking at malignancy. And during the study trial, 
I mean, their primary endpoint is to show non-inferiority of tofacitinib compared to a TNF inhibitor. Well, they failed to meet their primary endpoint. So when those warning labels came out, I mean, we got so many phone calls from our patients. There were so many people who were trying to get an expert opinion. They called me and they're like, well, what do you think? Should we take them off the drug? Should we not? And all this. And I was like, well, first of all, is the patient okay? Are they doing well on their drug? And if their disease is under control, then I would recommend that they stay on the drug. Alternatively, if the patient has a lot of concerns, just had a heart attack or something, then yes, maybe you should switch in, you know, but each case should be individualized. And so I just didn't know how GI approached this. I know you guys have younger patients than we do. And to me, it would be better if you can control, you know, all their comorbidities, tell them to stop smoking, get their blood sugar under control, tell them to exercise 150 minutes a week, watch your diet, have a healthier lifestyle. I think that has impact in reducing cardiovascular risk in addition to controlling their disease activity. You said that perfectly. It's you found something that works for patients who haven't had a lot of things work well at all from them over their time. And they've struggled, struggled, struggled. People can struggle for 10 years and be 30 years old, right? And that's that's sad. That's so defeating. And you finally get your life back and you're 32 and you missed your twenties. And you're right. That's a different population from the standpoint of looking at those factors, right? Like oh, obesity, hyperlipidemia, blood pressure, prediabetes, et cetera, controlling those things. They're eating better. They're off their corticosteroids, which can increase the risk for all of those things to potentially negatively affect them. Um, and so that's been a big deal. Yeah. This isn't like a very simple discussion because everybody is a little bit different in terms of how they manage these patients and how patients actually respond. So any last words? Because this has been a great conversation and I wish I could continue it for the next two hours, but I don't know if we're going to lose any audience members. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, we could we could talk for seemingly forever. No, I, I really appreciate this. I look forward to talking hopefully sometime soon and again. And then I think we collaborating together, the conversation, just opening the lines of communication could solve so many problems and better our patients. Um, and so this is really great. And I wish we could we could do this uh, more often and even on a more tangible clinical kind of standpoint. So this is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And audience, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about hepatocytinib clinical data in patients with RA and patients with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, there's a downloadable summary on the Room Now Therapeutic Updates page. Thank you so much again for joining me. This is Dr. Catherine Dow. It is important to note that hepatocytinib has a boxed warning for serious infections that may lead to hospitalization or death mortality, malignancies, including lymphomas and lung cancers, major adverse cardiovascular events, and thrombosis, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and arterial thrombosis. Avoid upadacitinib in patients at risk of thrombosis. Consider the individual patient's risks and benefits prior to initiating or continuing therapy. See full prescribing information for additional information about hypersensitivity reactions, non-melanoma skin cancers, other serious adverse reactions, avoiding live vaccines and the importance of immunizations, medication residue in stool, and the most common adverse reactions. 
Review Upadacitinib full prescribing information for additional information at www.rxabv.com slash pdf slash renvoke underscore pi dot pdf.